Welcome to MUFG APEC Insights Podcast. In today's update, we put the spotlight on hybrid renewables, what they are, and the role it will play in global energy transition. The following podcast is for information purposes only. It is intended for professional investors and eligible counterparties, and not for retail clients. Any content should not be regarded as an offer to conduct investment businesses or investment recommendations. Hi everyone, I am Jean Monson, based in Singapore. I cover project finance renewables across the APEC region. We have a very exciting topic lined up for you today. On the agenda, hybrid renewable energy takes center stage. In this session, we demystify hybrids and examine its role in the global energy transition. Joining me in today's discussion are my distinguished guests from UL Renewables, Chris Ziesler, Director of Advisory Services, North America, and Guru Vilu, Director of Advisory Services, India. A very warm welcome to you both. Chris, I know it's quite late in the evening in Chicago and very early in India for you, Guru. So we really appreciate you both staying up late and getting up early for this. So thank you very much for making the time to join me in our discussion on hybrids today. It's great to have you here. Very much indeed. I'm glad we managed to find the time that worked for all of us. Happy to be here, Jean. Great. Thank you both. So before we dive into the discussion, let me just set the scene. As the energy transition accelerates, we have been seeing a rise of hybrid activity globally. Closer to home in India, a record-breaking financing from Adani Green Energy Limited closed in March, raising the largest ever project finance loan in renewables of 1.35 billion US dollars. This transaction comprised of three wind, solar, hybrid, greenfield projects in Rajasthan, India, with a total capacity of a whopping 1.69 gigawatts, marking Adani Green as the leading hybrid developer in India. The deal set a number first in quantum of financing, in scale and technology of the projects, and the first ever green certification of a hybrid loan. MUFG was a lender and leveraging off over 100 gigawatts of renewables experience under our belt. We also led the technical aspects of this deal, which I was involved in. And of course, Chris Guru, we cross paths in this transaction, which is what brings us here today. So in summary, an incredibly exciting and groundbreaking transaction for India and hybrids globally, which we'll come back to you know, in a moment. So back to hybrids, most people will have heard about wind, solar technology, but not everyone is familiar with hybrids. I know I certainly wasn't. So before we go any further, let's unpack what a hybrid actually is. Chris, why don't you kick us off here? What is a hybrid renewable project? What are the types? And apart from wind and solar, can we combine other technologies? Well, thanks, uh, Jean. It's a good question to start with. And hybrid is a very general kind of word. Um, and obviously, we're talking about renewable hybrid systems, but they really do come in lots of different flavors. Uh, the particular one that we looked at with the Adani transaction was a combined wind and solar plant but we can also add storage that's also you know one of the things and I think we'll talk about that a little bit later on so you can have solar plus storage and um, obviously wind plus storage and in fact the, the trifecta wind plus solar plus storage but we can also have uh, other types of hybrid which maybe uh, involve you know sometimes it can be um, fossil plants such as natural gas plant as well the other 
type of different uh, hybrids that we, we see are ones that are co-located on the same site. So you have your wind and solar at, physically at the same site, sharing the same infrastructure, or they can actually also be separate sites, you know, sometimes maybe even hundreds of kilometers apart. So for quite a variety of different types of, uh, of hybrid, and they tend to be, you know, designed for very particular applications, which I think we'll probably talk about a little bit later on. Thanks, Chris. And just turning to Guru, because as, as you know firsthand, the Adani Green transaction, which Chris also touched on, involved wind solar hybrids. But particularly for India, we are hearing of a variety of other types of tenders emerging in India, you know, for instance, round the clock. Can, what, what are these and can you provide us with a little bit more details? A good point, Jean. So while we are talking about a hybrid, the technology remains same, which is wind and solar. We by the different bits, we are trying to address the different priorities uh, for the load dispatch center, which is RTC, which is around the clock and uh, peak power demand. While the round the clock is addressing increasing the plant load factor or capacity utilization factor on every month. Typically, we have we we used to see uh, in a standalone wind vanilla solar vanilla project uh, 20 to uh, 25 percentage of uh, PLFs. Uh, we can increase up 70 to 75 percentage on monthly basis uh, in RTC, while peak power demand is addressing the peak hours of energy demand in the morning and in the evening, and hybrids are addressing the different priorities. That's why we, we see uh, different types of hybrid bits. I hope this is going to continue in the future as well. Uh, I think the bits are going to be more innovative and uh, creative. Thanks, Guru. So clearly, I think we, we are seeing a rise in the popularity of hybrids, which takes us to you know the next topic. Let's talk about the benefits. For our listeners, I think it's worth introducing the concept of intermittency which is really fundamental to understanding renewables. Unlike a traditional thermal power plant, which is capable of producing electricity 24-7, renewables only generate electricity when the sun shines or the wind blows. So this makes their power intermittent or variable. Depending on the time of the day or the season, so summer or winter, your power will fluctuate. So this is a big limitation of renewable energy. And Maybe I can offer one insight here is that hybrids offer a neat solution to this problem. In short, they reduce intermittency on a daily and seasonal basis. By virtue of the fact that wind and solar are complementary resources, the sun shines strongest during the day and the wind blows strongest at night. So by combining them, you have the ability of generating more power on any given day. You know, take a simple case of a solar powered house, which is 100% run on solar, putting aside batteries and other storage solutions for the moment. It is completely beholden to the sun's rays. However, if you introduce a wind turbine, especially at night, electricity can still be produced after the sun has gone down. So you would be able to make yourself a cup of tea, read a book, watch Netflix. I'm, of course, grossly simplifying. Chris. Sticking with this and exploring the concept of increased output, the capacity and load factors, you know, with all this terminology, could you 
explain a little bit what this actually means and what advantages are you seeing in these in, in these terms? Yeah, absolutely. And let's be sort of fair to, to start with, and I think it's something that sometimes people get a little bit confused about. Um, capacity utilization factor or a cuff factor, also known in other parts of the world as a plant load factor, PLF, or in the States typically is known as a net capacity factor. They're, they're all the same thing, but just different words for that. And really what they are, it's actually a very simple concept. It's really a way of kind of normalizing the energy production of a plant to, which allows for easier comparisons between plants of different sizes. And different technologies tend to have different cuff factors sort of as part of the nature of what they, they actually produce. It's actually, again, it's, it's pretty simple. If you think about it from a point of view of, if you had a, a, a simple, say one megawatt plant, over a year, that would, if it was operating 100% of the time, it would produce 8,760 megawatt hours of electricity because that's 8,760 hours in a year. Now, no renewable plant will ever produce 100% uh, cuff factor because it's variable, as, as you mentioned. So if you look at, say, a 10% cuff, that would give you 876 uh, megawatts of, uh, of energy. If you looked at 20%, it would give you 1,752 and, and so on. So again, it's a very simple kind of relationship. A typical range of a solar plant, and this is pretty much kind of the world over, the lower side would be about maybe a 15% cuff factor, a high maybe 25%. Wind would be sort of typical low, and I'm talking India now, would be sort of 20%. A high would be 35%. Now, when you combine those, a solar plus a wind, say uh, at, uh, for a, a high uh, sort of resource site, you, you get a sort of 25% from the solar, 35% for wind. They don't add up directly. They don't add up to 60% because sometimes you're finding that you're sort of the amount of power you're generating can't be all exported. But you would certainly expect to get a, a, a cuff factor, CUF factor of, of maybe 55%. And obviously one of the things that we do as kind of independent engineers is we'll look at that and tell you what that cut factor is for a given site. So think of it as, as a way of optimizing the use of, of uh, optimizing the resource that you're getting from the site and, and, and turning that into more megawatt hours for a given sort of level of uh, interconnection, a given ability to, to export from the site. And when you mention this sort of 50 plus level, Chris, yes. just to clarify, this is combining solar and wind, but we're, we're not yet talking about adding, you know, oh, battery no, or no, adding any no. sort of, no. exactly, exactly. And, and if we did, what, what sort of levels can we, can, can we hit? So it's important to remember when, when we're talking about this, that when I mentioned, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the actual plant size, typically when we're talking about these, these cuff factors, just imagine you had a 100 megawatt uh, interconnection export limit, as it were. What, what you might do is you might have, say, 75 megawatts of wind and 75 megawatts of, of solar, but the, the cuff factor is calculated against that 100 megawatts, if you see what I mean. So you, you, you tend to overbuild. So the sort of capacity factors, the sort of uh, cuff factors that you can get really depends on how much you want to overbuild. Uh, and I think maybe we'll, later on we'll talk a little bit more about how you actually hit or how you design it to hit the constraints that you're given by the tenders. But really, it's, it's up to you as to how you design it. And so you can actually hit some very high cuff factors if you're prepared to overbuild either in the solar or, or the wind part of, part of the plant. That's interesting. So I think we'll come back to this concept mm -hmm. later, this concept of overbuilding 
so meaning installing more than what is contractually sort of required or what you've contractually signed up to. And, and I think we'll come back to that. You know, another benefit that we see is the optimization of infrastructure. That there's a huge amount of infrastructure involved in these projects. Um, roads, substations, shadow and M facilities, you know, grid, grid and transmission infrastructure. And for a single resource, so taking um, wind or solar at the cuff levels that both yourselves and Guru have mentioned um, in the sort of 20 to 30 range, this infrastructure would be severely underutilized. So the infrastructure is there, isn't it? Regardless of whether you use it 20% of the time or 80% of the time, the roads are built, um, substations are built and it's paid for. So you would effectively be using or utilizing these resources more efficiently and lowering the overall economic cost per dollar on such infrastructure. So it, it sort of makes economic sense as well. I think that's exactly that's exactly correct. I mean, that's one of the big drivers there is, as you say, you put a lot of money into building the infrastructure and you want to make the optimal use out of it. Yeah. Guru, I just want to take the conversation back to you now. And coming back to Adani Green transaction in India, we know that the Indian government strategically introduced policy in 2018 to encourage the adoption of wind-solar hybrids to meet its ambitious renewables target. As you mentioned at the beginning, there's been a number of different types of hybrid tenders since then, including round-the-clock and peak power demand. So turning to the features for a moment, to qualify as a hybrid under these tenders, what are the PPA requirements? Talk us through some interesting features that we're seeing appearing in wind-solar hybrids, um, round-the-clock and peak power demand. For, for example, just taking wind-solar hybrids, we know that in the first round of regulations, it prescribed a ratio for wind and solar portion, one resource had to be 25% of the other resource in order for it to qualify as a hybrid. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about these requirements. Sure, Jean. So the Indian government is uh, more focusing on the hybrid, the reason being while we support the renewable energy, as you mentioned, the constraint being intermittent in nature, while we develop the renewable and support the renewables, if the renewable can address their own constraint uh, by themselves, uh, by combining their different technologies and trying to increase the PL of our cuff factor, which we discussed in detail a little while ago. Now, uh, by, by this uh, hybrid project, initially it was perceived that a minimum percentage of, uh, uh, be it solar or wind, having 25% minimum does make sense. Whereas uh, while we increase our uh, creativity innovation to, uh, to bring new bits like uh, RTC and peak power demand, we realized that the, the technologies can have its own share of mix in the project if we as long as if we can address the lying problem of intermittent in nature i i think that is uh, helping us as a as a nation to manage the grid better that that's why indian government is more focusing and strategically coming up with different bits. I think this is the trend we are going to see in the hybrid market in the Indian uh, Indian renewable energy. Given the target of 175 and 400 or 350 gigawatt in the next five, 10 years, bringing these kind of uh, new technologies or 
hybrid projects in, into the into the grid, helping us to manage the grid better. While speaking about the features, the straightforward hybrid projects will have to be co-located, and that that give us a uh, put us a constraint that the both the resources has to be uh, with equal both the both the technologies. It means a project site which is solar irradiance is maybe let's talk about in terms of PLF. If the if the solar PLF is almost fifteen percentage, the same project should have to have at, at least twenty to twenty five percentage of windy uh, wind project, which is not common in every project. Whereas the RTC and peak power demand give us the liberty of having multi located, which means we can select. A resource of uh, solar, which can be you know, uh, where the PLF is higher. For example, the solar PLF we can strategically select a twenty percentage of uh, site, and having we are able to select wind project where it is at the highest uh, resource. That gives us a leverage, and that is making more sense in terms of a financial model. And this is. Uh, like a win-win situation between the grid operator and the project developer uh, that is giving us, I think that's visible in the PPA, which means the recent PPAs we have seen is more interested for the project developers, if that answers your question, Jean. Yes, thanks, Guru. And I think, you know, you make a really interesting point about land and location in particular. So what I understand, what I'm hearing is that for the wind-solar hybrids, a co-location requirement is there, but for the RTC and PPD um, tenders, they can be multi-located. So just going back to the wind-solar hybrids for a moment, assuming that your wind-solars are co-located, Finding land which is both sunny and windy is going to be harder than just finding one with either or. So I can see that you know, this is going to lead to a scramble for the best land in, 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 in the country. And it's going to be a question of finding such good sites. So pulling all of this together from the, our discussion, land capacity factors, overbuilding, ratios, costs, it does sound like a balance of all these factors. But, you know, on a per megawatt basis, we know solar uses more land than wind. But on a per megawatt basis, wind is more expensive. So achieving that optimal blend of solar, wind, land and costs is going to be tricky. And Chris, maybe to put you on the spot here, <laughs> could you provide us with of your course. perspectives of, of these considerations and how to find that perfect mix? How are developers managing this balance at the moment? What, what's the key ingredient in all this? Well, that's a, it's a very good point um, because, as you said, the, there are certain limits to the, to the sites available. And uh, as Guru mentioned, that, that if you have to co-locate, you really have to find a site that has both good wind and solar resource. What we've seen kind of historically, uh, there are a number of companies uh, who have wind maps and solar maps. Uh, we certainly have uh, our own um, our own products that we offer in this space, but there are others as well. And so what you try and do is you basically do some prospecting work um, and the prospecting work tends to use the maps um, to, to give you an idea of where those good sites uh, are. Once you've found that site, then very typically 
we certainly recommend that you gather at least a year's worth of data, preferably wind and solar data. We've seen uh, quite a number of companies who decide that they, they can just use satellite model data for, for solar. And I think that's okay, but you definitely need to get at least a year's worth of data for the, for the wind. Um, and then what we do is we build up a kind of a model for the site typically using what we call reanalysis data sets, which are long-term data sets used from sort of weather forecasting agencies around the world. Um, and we build up a model of like 20 years or so as to how the plant would have operated and if we'd have built it 20 years ago. Uh, and, and really what we're trying to do is we're trying to see exactly to what extent the solar and wind complement each other. You mentioned that word complement earlier in the uh, podcast, and, and it's absolutely right that we know broadly the wind sort of is higher during the night, but what we want to do once we get to a financing case is to know more exactly. We build up sort of these models and they inform the decisions that we make with the plant in terms of actually optimizing how we build the plant. It's also worth saying that it's it's also important to have a good knowledge of your, your capex and opex numbers, because when you're actually trying to decide the exact right blend of wind and solar at a given site, you, you're really looking to optimize all those different features, both the resource plus also the, the, the build and how you're going to operate uh, the plant as well, because they all interact with one another uh, at the site. And I think we saw this uh, during you know, the Adani work. Uh, that was a lot of really good work done by Adani to sort of quantify these to get the best sort of possible financial model and ultimately the value for consumers, because that's what we have to remember at the end is what we're aiming for is to produce the lowest cost of electricity uh, into the grid, because that way you get good um, supply to the customers. Speaking of location, Chris, here's another thought for you. How do we send clean energy that's generated in the best locations to areas that are not blessed with as much sun or wind. So, for example, here I'm thinking of states like you know, Rajasthan, Gujarat, and India, or California, which are sunny or desert states. How do we transport clean energy generator in those states to you know, sun and wind-deprived states? And it's going to make those states difficult to meet their emissions targets. And I think the difference here is, unlike thermal power plants, where you bring the feedstock to where the power plant is located, you can't just transport a ray of sunshine or a breeze to a sun-deprived or windless location or store it and release it in winter. No technology can solve that. Irradiation and wind energy are converted into electricity first, then transported via power lines to another location. Which I think brings us to the next critical piece of the puzzle, which is transmission infrastructure and its readiness for transporting clean energy cross-country to parts deprived of wind and sun. So are our grids ready for this and, and how much upgrades will be needed? You know, it's not just a, a hybrid challenge, but actually a renewables challenge. And it's not just India, it's also Australia and the US. And it's a good problem to have. As we ramp up clean energy globally, this increases the need to find solutions to transport and dis distribute power in times of oversupply, short of storing it. So, so I think that's the other question. You either transport over-generated clean energy immediately to places that need it or are short in supply, or you store it. So going back to my example of that solar-powered house, if there are batteries, we can store the power generated during the day to be used at night. Or if there's so much sun, you know, during summer in a desert state, there's oversupply, 
it can be transmitted cross-country on a transmission network to another location where the sun is perhaps not shining so brightly. And I think this is really the next big question, how to transport or store. It brings in the question of batteries and maybe we have to park that for another session. Finally, it would be great to hear some market developments for hybrids and concluding remarks here. Chris, what are you seeing in the US? We're seeing a lot of interest in hybrids, particularly from two main types of hybrid. One, uh, wind plants, existing wind plants having additional solar added onto them. And the other is solar plus storage because storage costs are coming down. They've come down sort of 90% since 2010 and are continuing to go down, actually driven largely by electric vehicles. And because that those storage prices are coming down, we're seeing solar and storage being added together. We're seeing that in the States. We're seeing that in, in uh, the UK. We're seeing it in South America. So very interesting developments. And just coming back to Guru, because India is currently a hive of activity for hybrids. What are you seeing and what final thoughts can you leave us with? Sure, Jean. So with our existing uh, installed capacity of uh, 93 gigawatt of renewables, having a 350 gigawatt of target, I would say that uh, the, the, the interests are coming more in hybrid. I would say the coming renewables is going to be not less than 50% in hybrids. That's the best way to put it. Indeed, I think this session has proven that it's a very exciting time for renewables and in particular for hybrids, which can be a game changer. So I just want to say a big thank you to our guests for joining me today to discuss the rise of hybrid renewables. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Guru. Thank you, Jean. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jean. I am Jean Monson. Thank you for listening. We look forward to having more of these sessions with you. Take care and goodbye. Thank you for listening to the MUFG APEC Insights Podcast. This episode is available on Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify. Rate, review, and subscribe, and reach out to an MUFG sales representative for business inquiries.